you would turn with me in the Bible to Mark chapter 15, found on page 1014 in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, we'll be reading the last session of the Gospel of Mark that includes the Easter story. So I'm going to read starting at chapter 15, verse 40, through to chapter 16, verse 8. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 40. Uh, so the passage leading up to this is just described the death of Jesus on the cross. Verse 40 says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Everyone loves a good comeback, especially if it involves a team you're rooting for. I'm not so much talking about a, a sly answer, but uh, a sports comeback. Uh, so I grew up outside of Boston, uh, following the Red Sox, during the time that the Red Sox had not won a World Series in eight years. And every year, people in Boston would say, this is the year, and then it wasn't, until 2004, when the Red Sox fell behind three games to none against the Yankees in the AL Championship Series, we've seen that before, right? They were behind in game four, facing Mariano Rivera, and they came back to win, not only game four, but the AL Championship Series, and then they swept the World Series. It was a year that no Boston fan will never forget. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, I know I'm in Connecticut, 
we are in the northeastern part, so we lean toward Boston. But for those of you Yankees fans, I'll throw you a bone. <laughs> there was a game at Fenway in April of 2012, during the regular season, mind you, when you guys were down 9 to nothing after five innings and came back to beat us 15 to 9. Doesn't quite compare to 2004 in my book, but I guess it's something. <laughs> Moving away from rancorous local rivalries, if you watch this year's Super Bowl, no matter your feelings about the Chiefs or the Bengals, you have to admire Patrick Mahomes, right? He was dealing with some serious pain from an ankle injury, he played through it, played the whole game, led his team to victory. And finally, this past Monday, the UConn men's basketball team won their fifth national championship, despite the fact that over the last five seasons, they had won no NCAA tournament games, and at the beginning of this season, they weren't even ranked in the top 25. There's a comeback we can all agree on to celebrate. Everybody loves a good comeback, especially if it involves a team that you're rooting for. Now, why do we love comeback stories? Well, I think they're partly because they're energizing. They give us hope that pain and loss, defeat and disappointment don't have to be the last word in life. Even if we've fallen short of our own expectations, even if we've performed dismally in the past, there's still the possibility of a bright future. And in the passage we just read, Mark tells us the story of a comeback to end all comebacks. Verse 6 says, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here in the grave anymore. And this was the message that the earliest Christians proclaimed. That the same Jesus who had been crucified is now the risen and exalted Lord of all. So I want us to consider two things this morning. Number one, the comeback of Jesus himself after he had been crucified. But second, this passage also points us toward a comeback for those who follow Jesus after his followers had failed and fallen short. So those are the two themes I want to focus on this morning from the passage we just read. So first, uh, the comeback of Jesus himself, who had been crucified. Crucifixion was, you might say, the ultimate hell, the ultimate loss on one's record. Now, obviously, crucifixion meant the loss of life and an extremely painful end uh, after having been repeatedly flogged with a whip containing pieces of bone and metal the condemned man would be forced to carry the heavy wooden beam to which he would be nailed or tied with ropes he would eventually die of suffocation and exhaustion and exposure to the elements but crucifixion was not only the loss of one's life it also meant the loss of one's dignity crucifixion was about the most degrading and humiliating punishment imaginable. To be hung naked, bruised, and bleeding outside the city walls before jeering crowds, helpless to fend off the flies and the vultures. That's why Roman citizens were almost never crucified. It was a punishment for the worst of the worst, for traitors, for prisoners of war, for especially for slaves who tried to lead rebellions. When the Romans crucified people, they wanted to send a message loud and clear. We won. You lost. So crucifixion meant the loss of one's life, the loss of one's dignity, and it also meant the loss of one's movement. Some historians estimate that over 100,000 people may have been crucified during the history of the Roman Empire over several centuries. 
many have led protest movements or revolutions of one kind or another, but after they were crucified, every last one of their movements dissolved. Except for one. Now, in the time of Jesus, there were several Jewish men who rose up, claiming to be a prophet or a miracle worker or even the Messiah. And there was one guy named Theudas, another guy named Judas the Galilean. Each of these men gathered a following. Apparently, Theudas had a few hundred followers. But once the Romans killed the leader, invariably the followers scattered and the movement dissolved. So crucifixion meant the loss of one's life, the loss of one's dignity, the loss of one's movement, and of all the people that the Romans crucified in the ancient world, only one had to come back. Only one movement survived. And it not only survived, it spread through the entire known world and has become the largest religion on the planet. Only one of these men who endured such a humiliating death was not only honored after his death, but worshipped as God. Only one had four biographies written about him, one of which we're reading from today. All of which claim that he was crucified under orders of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and that three days later he literally came back to life again. So you have to ask, how in the world did this comeback happen? Now some people say, you know, this whole idea of Jesus being actually physically resurrected, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, or at least a legendary embellishment that developed much later. I mean, you can always find people who believe all sorts of things uh, on the basis of very little actual evidence. Uh, to take one example, it's been over 45 years since Elvis Presley died, and there are still Elvis fans who insist that he's alive somewhere. Uh, no offense if you're one of them, that's not really my point today, but consider the following. The Elvis Sighting Society claims that Elvis deliberately faked his death in order to go into hiding. But nobody in the first century made that claim about Jesus. Uh, in verses 44 and 45, which we read, uh, Joseph requested Jesus' body from Pilate. Pilate was the governor who had condemned him to death or the judge. And Pilate asked the centurion. The centurion was the Roman military officer responsible for overseeing the execution. And he asked, so Pilate asked this guy to verify whether Jesus had actually died. You see, the Romans knew very well how to crucify people. They had done so for centuries. They had no inclination to let somebody off once they had put him on the cross. And it's not only the New Testament that says that Jesus was crucified and died under orders of Pontius Pilate. The Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, neither of whom were Christian, both affirm this as a known historical fact. So everyone back then agreed that Jesus had really died. That wasn't even in dispute at all. Now second, you might say, well, could the, then if it wasn't, uh, you know, faking his death and then coming back, uh, what about the idea of a legend that develops later on, right? This idea of Jesus' bodily resurrection must be a legend that developed several decades after the fact when there was nobody still around to authoritatively debunk it. Uh, but earlier we read from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which was written just 20 years after Jesus was crucified, around 1853. 
And you might have noticed Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, and he appeared. And you know, Paul didn't invent that idea 20 years after Jesus died. Notice he says, I delivered this to you, what I also received. So he's saying, I delivered this to you. In other words, when I was with you in person, he's writing a letter from a distance to them. He's saying, when I was with you in person, which would have been a couple of years ago, probably 50 AD, when he was in Corinth, that's what he told them, that Jesus had been crucified, and had been buried, and had been raised from the dead, and had appeared to many witnesses. And then he said, before I told you that in person, I received that. In other words, I learned this from some other people. Uh, so most historians think that Paul received it from uh, the Christian community in Jerusalem, uh, which would have been a few years before that. And of course, before Paul would have received something that was sort of a summary of the Christian faith, then that had to develop into an, an accepted summary of the Christian faith. So you have to you go back and back and back. So many scholars believe that the statement Paul was quoting originated within five years of when Jesus himself was crucified. So you see, the claim that Jesus was bodily resurrected wasn't just something that came around 50 or 100 or 200 years later. Christians were claiming this from the very beginning, that Jesus had been crucified, had been died and was buried, and then was bodily raised to life again. Uh, third point, notice who Mark lists as the witnesses to Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. In verse 40, uh, verse 47, and verse 1. So verse 40 mentions Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joses, and Salome. Verse 47 says the first two of those witnessed his burial, and verse 1 says the same three uh, were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. Now, what do you notice about all of these witnesses? They're all women. Now, why does that fact matter? Well, in the culture of Jesus' time, women were consistently despised and belittled. So just a few examples. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote, Women are inferior to men in every way. Most Jewish rabbis refused to teach women at all. Jesus was unusual in that he did teach women as well as men. In both Jewish and Roman law courts, a woman's testimony was not legally valid. Uh, in the Roman world, in the second century AD, there was a, a pagan intellectual named Celsus who was sort of like the Richard Dawkins of his day. If you're familiar with Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins likes to attack religion in general, and Christianity in particular. And this guy, Kelsus, thought Christianity was absolutely ridiculous. And he wrote all kinds of uh, arguments attacking it. Uh, and here's his argument against the resurrection of Jesus in particular. He said, who really saw the resurrection? A hysterical woman. He said, you can't trust a woman's account of what happened. She was obviously deluded and hallucinating. Now, in that context, if you were Mark, who's writing the book we just read, or if you were really any other male in the ancient world, and if you were writing a story in order to convince people to believe that your Messiah had been physically raised from the dead, you would never put forth only women as your primary witnesses. And yet, all the Gospel writers do this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all agree that the first witnesses to the empty tomb of Jesus were all women. The only reason we would have such a story is if it actually happened that way. And Mark was simply telling the story like it happened, not making it up. 
And yet, I think there's also a beautiful irony in this fact. Think about it this way. If the God of the whole universe chose a group of women who were consistently despised and belittled in their society to be the first witnesses of the greatest comeback in all of world history of the resurrection of God's own Son, is there any greater demonstration of how the God of the Bible honors even those who are despised and belittled in the world? Fourth and finally, notice that Jesus' disciples were just as shocked as we would be. None of them were expecting the bodily resurrection. When the women saw that the tomb were empty, they didn't say, of course our dreams have come true. No. They were alarmed. They didn't know what to make of it. They were absolutely not expecting anything like what they encountered. They had to be convinced. And yet they did become convinced that it was true. That God had raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the first comeback that Mark tells us about. The comeback of Jesus himself. That after his crucifixion and death and burial, he, uh, he was bodily resurrected. And the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign that God, has, the Father, has placed his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus said and did and stood for. So that's the first comeback that this uh, passage tells us about. But Mark also points us to a second comeback. A comeback for Jesus' followers. Uh, now over the past year or so, uh, here in this church, we've gone through the whole Gospel of Mark from beginning to end. Uh, if you'd like to go back and listen to any of the previous messages, you can access almost all of them on our, via our church website. But one of the themes uh, that we've seen over and over, and if you've been here, uh, you'll recognize, I've said this multiple times before, is that Mark doesn't hide the flaws and failures of Jesus' followers. You know, if you talk to some uh, Christian people, uh, or if you read some kinds of church history books or certain kinds of Christian biographies, you'll hear sort of this perspective. Christians are the heroes. Christians save the day. Christians stand up for what's right. Christians are the ones who keep this world from descending into utter chaos, and other people are evil villains bent on wreaking havoc and spreading confusion. But if you read the Bible, you will not find that perspective in the Bible. The biblical authors, first of all, recognize that the world is, quite, is complicated. And they also recognize that Christians are not always the heroes. So look at the section that we've just read this morning. Where are Jesus' male disciples? The twelve apostles. They're the ones that probably are most famous, well-known. Where are they? Completely out of the picture. So one of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus handed him over to his enemies, never looked back. Then, as soon as Jesus was arrested, the other ten left him and fled. Chapter 14, verse 50 says that. Peter, the chief disciple, stayed around a little longer, but just a few hours later, he repeatedly and publicly denied having any association with Jesus at all. The way Mark portrays it, Jesus' apostles weren't even there when he was crucified. They didn't even help to, bear, to give a decent burial to his body. They had fallen asleep three times when he told them to watch and pray in the garden. They had abandoned their teacher in his moment of greatest need. They were disciples. Now, we see here that some of Jesus' female followers were more loyal than the guys. They stayed around longer 
At least three of them witnessed his crucifixion, two of them witnessed his burial, and three of them came to the tomb on Sunday morning to pay their respects. But notice that Mark doesn't portray the women as fearless heroes either. In verse 40, it says they looked on Jesus' crucifixion from a distance. Uh, the same phrase is used back in chapter 14 to describe how Peter followed Jesus, but only from a distance. And then, uh, uh, very soon after that, he denied knowing Jesus at all. So the idea of following Jesus, but only from a distance, is uh, sort of an ambiguous position, not the best position to be in. But in chapter 16, if you look at chapter 16, how the women are described, they're not only nervous and alarmed as they approach the tomb, but even afterwards in verse 8, they heard that Jesus is alive again, and it says they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, Mark knows that verse 8 is not the end of the story in an absolute sense. Mark is writing his gospel after all, so he knows that the news did spread. He knows that he uh, points out in verse 7 that Jesus had already promised to meet some of his disciples in Galilee. If you read Matthew, Luke, and John, they give more details about several appearances of Jesus to both his female and male disciples. But in verse 8, Mark emphasizes that Jesus' female disciples were not immediately filled with courage when they first heard about the resurrection. They panicked. They were overcome with fear. They fled, just as the male disciples had before the crucifixion. You see, before the Gospel of Mark ends, Mark shows us that every last one of Jesus' followers, the men and the women, all fall short in one way or another. Only Jesus remains completely faithful. And Mark is showing us that only Jesus is the hero of the story. In fact, if you look at today's passage, the only person who's portrayed in a consistently positive light is this guy Joseph of Arimathea. He's the only one who's described as exercising courage, verse 43. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But look who Joseph was. He was a member of the council that had condemned Jesus to death. Joseph of Arimathea wasn't a well-known, well-schooled disciple of Jesus already. This is the first time Mark mentions him by name. Joseph's tribe, the temple leaders, uh, were some of the more hostile people toward Jesus uh, compared to everybody else. So Joseph wasn't the first guy that you would expect to stand up for Jesus. But he did. He insisted on giving Jesus a decent burial, uh, even though it involved both a significant financial cost uh, and a significant risk to his reputation. It took courage for Joseph to approach the governor, who had just condemned Jesus to die, and ask his permission. Now, what do we take from this portrayal of Jesus' disciples and of Joseph? Well, first of all, throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's often the outsiders, the unlikely people, like Joseph, or like the centurion in verse 39, who saw how Jesus died on the cross and said, truly this man was the Son of God. It's often the unlikely people who respond most positively to Jesus. And maybe you can identify with Joseph or with the Roman centurion who would have been like the police officer on duty that day. You know, maybe you grew up in a family that said, 
Christianity is not for people like us. Or maybe you were connected to a political tribe like Joseph was, and some of your friends in that tribe are a, a bit hostile toward organized religion. Maybe you've seen people who claim to be Jesus' disciples do some ugly and cowardly things. But let me ask you, despite all that might stand in your way, what do you see when you look at Jesus himself? He was humble enough to die on the cross. He was strong enough to overcome death. Isn't there something about him that's deeply compelling and irresistibly attractive when you just look at him? If that's you, Mark wants you to know that Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again, not just for all the Christians who have it all figured, who seem to have it all figured out, but for you too. And Mark wants you to know that there's a place for you among those who recognize Jesus as Savior and seek to follow him as Lord. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and the way is open in the light of the resurrection. So I invite you, if that's you, to take courage, as Joseph did, and identify with Jesus. It might be costly, it might be risky, but it's definitely worth it. Finally, for those of us who are already Jesus' followers, what might be Mark's closing message for us? Well, I think first there's a humbling message. Mark wants us to see that we are not the heroes of the story. Only Jesus is. We're not the Messiahs. We're just messengers. Like Jesus' first disciples, we will have insights, uh, flashes of insight and success. And like Jesus' disciples, we will have moments of blindness and cowardice and failure. And no matter how long you and I have been following Jesus, we're still works in progress. We still need God's grace just as much as we ever did. We still need to rely completely on what Jesus did for us on the cross, because that's the only rock-solid foundation for our everlasting hope. So that's a humbling message, but there's also a hopeful message that Mark wants us to hear. The last word spoken in the Gospel of Mark is verse 7, and it's a hopeful word. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. You see, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion in Mark chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, Jesus had told his 12 disciples, you're all going to fall away tonight. But after I'm raised up, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, Galilee was where they had first met Jesus. And he said, I am <coughs> And verse 7 is the last word in the Gospel of Mark is a confirmation that Jesus' promise is still good. Despite the failures and flaws of Jesus' followers, Jesus will continue to go before us as our good shepherd, as our faithful and merciful Lord. And even Peter, notice, even Peter, who denied him three times in a row, gets a shout out by name. Peter would have felt particularly embarrassed. He was the leader among the apostles, after all. He had professed his unwavering loyalty to Jesus. Even if everybody else falls, I won't, he had said. And then he did that very night. But Peter's specifically included in this word of hope, too. And if he's included, then there's hope for every one of us who turns to Jesus and seeks to follow him. 
no matter how many shameful losses and disappointments that we've experienced or brought on ourselves, we can have hope for the future because of the promise of Jesus' faithfulness. Because he came back from the dead, the greatest comeback of all, he's made a way for us to come back after our failures and our shortcomings. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this record of the transforming reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray that we would treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. We pray that we would respond to you as you would have us. Uh, we pray that you would give us courage and hope and humility. Thank you for being our good and faithful shepherd. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.